Hi, I'm Hana Baba from KALW, and I wanted to let you know that the podcast you're about to hear is listener-supported. So if you like it, please go to KALW.org and click Donate Now to support this work. Thanks. Now enjoy the show. KALW. This is TBH. I'm Samuel Getacho. This podcast is made by, about, and for teenagers, and for anybody else who wants to hear what's on our minds. Our generation has been brought up with a constant onslaught of information. There are the classic sources, like books and magazines and newspapers, and there's the digitization of those sources of information, and the creation of social media giving us the ability to view photos, videos, and their captions in instantaneous and endless public forums like Twitter. We've created a world in which we have access to practically infinite stories. And as we all know, one of the major risks of the internet is the potential inaccuracy of those representations. Today we're considering perception, what's actually real, and what the media leads us to believe is real. A lot of how we take in the parts of the world that we don't see in person comes from what we see through videos, whether it's on Instagram, Snapchat, YouTube, or Netflix. And these representations of the world are influential, in more ways than we often realize. Let's hear a few perspectives on their power. I go to Galileo Academy. My name is Tariq Aboud, and I'm in 10th grade. My parents have divorced for maybe as long as I can remember. I've only seen my dad during this divorce time a couple Sundays a month. And on these Sundays, we would barely have any time to spend with each other. So what we did was we would watch a movie, and uh, we would just talk about it after. And in this time, we would bond with each other. My name is Kimberly Regalado. I am a 10th grader at Burden High School and my media is Netflix. When I first got the app and started paying for it, I would always watch movies or TV shows to the point where I would stay up really late and not get enough sleep. I would also get distracted by it and not really finish my homework, causing my grades to go down. I didn't want to go out but stay in, watching various seasons of TV shows. I'm not really addicted no more, but whenever I find something really interesting, I finish what I have to do before watching it. We spend so much time consuming these kinds of media, and we often learn about the world through them. The gaps of all the things we don't experience in our day-to-day lives are filled in a way, and it becomes easy to feel like we know everything. But one of the major drawbacks of this phenomenon is that when all that's available is a limited representation of something, we simply believe that's all that exists, what Chimamanda Adichie calls the danger of a single story. If we see a country solely represented as war-torn, for example, it becomes harder to understand that country beyond its violence. If we see a certain demographic of people solely represented as poor, it becomes difficult to see beyond their poverty. And it's not just people or places that we don't know. We also apply this limited view to people and places we actually do see and know in our everyday lives all the time. And sometimes, when that deeper, multifaceted representation isn't readily available, we have to work for it a little. And that's exactly what one of our reporters did with his home on Treasure Island. Treasure Island. Sounds romantic, right? Well, it's actually an artificial island built on a natural reef between Oakland and San Francisco. Only a few thousand people live there now. But San Francisco officials have big plans to turn the island into a high-density eco-city. 
Landon Neal didn't know about any of this when he moved there a few years ago in middle school. He just knew that he hated living somewhere that felt so isolated, empty, and abandoned. But then, he discovered old film footage that sent him on a mission to understand the forces that shaped the island's history, to understand it beyond the single representation he saw every day. When local media outlets talk about Treasure Island, they often focus on two things, radiation and development. With a grand entrance to Treasure Island, the hope is this will be an iconic location for San Francisco. In this clip, KPIX 5 reporter Dahlin talks about plans to turn Treasure Island into San Francisco's next great neighborhood. This master plan includes a lot, 500 hotel rooms and about $50 million worth of artwork. Think of high-rises, hotels, condos, and townhomes. The dark side of this development project was recently satirized by the San Francisco Mime Troupe. It's a killer island. Affordable housing on radioactive poisoned land. In this show, the developers are portrayed as greedy pirates. Treasure Island is an old military base, and so the play focuses on lingering concerns about radiation. And it paints Treasure Island as an environmental time bomb. Climate change is here. That ship has sailed. If our uh, temperature goes up two degrees, Treasure Island will be underwater. But I know about Treasure Island outside of plays like this and the media, because I grew up there. In 2015, my dad and I moved out to the island. We moved from Los Angeles when he got a job working on a major transit center. Treasure Island was one of the few affordable places left in San Francisco. So all of a sudden, I found myself living on an island I knew nothing about. It reminded me of a deserted theme park, only without the charm. The fog covered everything up. I remember a lot of abandoned houses and a huge pile of dirt and a baseball field in the middle of the island. My dad told me this place was sinking into the bay, and he warned me about not planting any food on the soil because he said it was radioactive. But then in high school, my perception of Treasure Island changed forever. I had just joined a film club and was learning all about digital media. I stumbled on archival footage that showed Treasure Island in 1940. Gone the brilliant spectacle of five million California flowers woven into a fabric of wondrous exhibits and spectacular shows. The footage was shot towards the end of the Golden Gate International Exposition, the Great World's Fair of the West. The video shows striking artwork in buildings, like the Elephant Towers, where abstract Burmese elephants rest on Mayan pyramids. Creating an atmosphere of the peace and industrial security that belongs to us, the people of the Western Hemisphere. For the longest time, I didn't believe this video was real. After seeing the footage, I knew I wanted to learn more about the history and why it was once called the Magic City. But the history of Treasure Island doesn't begin at the World's Fair. I think when it was built, it was probably one of the largest man-made islands in the world. Tanu Sankalia is an art and architecture professor at the University of San Francisco. He's also the co-editor of Urban Reinventions, San Francisco's Treasure Island. In the 1930s, San Francisco wanted to build an airport to assert West Coast dominance of commerce in the Pacific. But there wasn't a whole lot of room in the city for an airport. So San Francisco decided to build an island from scratch, out of mud dredged from the bay. They created a seawall out of huge, gigantic boulders, and because it was flat and man-made, there was nothing on it. So everything was sort of brought in right from, you know, buildings were built on it, roads were constructed, plots were created, 
They brought in different plants from all over and trees, huge trees which they put in there. By 1937, the Golden Gate Bridge and the Bay Bridge were both finished. And San Francisco's elite wanted to show off and celebrate. So, two years later, San Francisco hosted the Golden Gate International Exposition on Treasure Island. The fair was meant to showcase peace and harmony and artwork from cultures around the Pacific Rim. But what I didn't realize was that this celebration was happening the same time as World War II was beginning in Europe. On a global level, I mean, of course, it was the United States projecting its power in the Pacific Rim. There was no doubt about that. But of course, then couching it, you know, in this idea of of peace and harmony. That image couldn't last. By 1940, the fair was over. Sankalia says the Navy soon transformed the magic city into a military space to serve the war effort. The Navy wiped out most of the buildings almost immediately. The famous Japanese pavilion was even torched. The footage I had found in my high school film club shows Treasure Island just before all of this happened. So the film that made me want to learn more about Treasure Island is actually really sad. And soon after I found that tape, I found this one from 1940. There's nobody on Treasure Island today but the seagulls. The gateway is there, but not in the way it used to be. The barkers are gone, the girls are gone, the giant crane and the octopus and the roller coaster are still. Will they move once more? Will the World's Fair of the West ever be seen again in all its brilliant color, with its crowds and its music? Or will it always be barren like this? We don't know. That's up to the bankers and the creditors. But the giant cash register, which used to turn up the big attendance figures, is all closed out. The rest of Treasure Island's history is really bleak. The Navy operated a radiological training school on the island beginning in the 1950s. The military cleaned contaminated substances off of ships like the USS Pandemonium to practice for potential nuclear warfare. So this really became the source of all the contamination that we see you know, over a period of uh, over 50 years. The naval station closed down in the late 90s. San Francisco bought the island back and began plans for a massive development project. San Francisco plans to turn the island into Magic City 2.0. Only instead of showing off culture like in the World's Fair, this project is meant to show off environment sustainability. The grand vision is to transform Treasure Island into an ecotopia, or a super green city of the future. You say, wow, look, there's 100 acres of, op- of built and 300 acres that's open. And out of the open space, the plan is to have wetlands and bike paths and all these very sustainable and eco-friendly aspects. Sincalia says Treasure Island has always been a site of contradictions. The World's Fair, for example, advertised peace during war. And now, city leaders hope to somehow turn this island which has had a history of radiation and contamination into a post-carbon ecotopia. Now, the question that everybody asks is that how is this actually going to be sustainable? Because Treasure Island is made of mud, there are also questions about how it would grapple with an earthquake or the effects of climate change. The projections are very, very different, but one thing we know is that Given the rate of change that we're seeing globally in terms of sea level rise and the melting of the ice caps and so on, and that a large part of the island could potentially be underwater by 2050. Sankalia says Treasure Island is a perfect example of what he calls urban reinvention. 
That's where officials take a space that already exists, try to start over and build. But he says you can't erase the past or present. Thousands of people already live there. One of the things that we say is that there's a sort of a paradox within urban reinvention, within this whole notion of erasure, because you really cannot wipe everything out because contamination, for example, still creeps through. Still, officials are plowing ahead. Two years ago, the city broke ground on a huge real estate project to fill the land with about 20,000 residents by 2035. When I look around the island now, all I see are gated off areas and construction. My local church was forced to move off the island. The chicken and waffle shop I really wanted to try closed down. If this development project does finish up on time, I'll be 33 years old by then. I don't have high hopes. Treasure Island was a major tourist attraction during the World's Fair. The artwork and architecture brought people together. I love that stuff, and I love watching the old footage, but it was temporary. What I'd really like to see in the city is a community that lasts. That story was reported by Landon Neal. He now lives in Pennsylvania, where he attends Westmont Hilltop High in Johnstown. I'm so inspired and fascinated by what Landon did, because it demonstrates a kind of introspection and self-awareness that we can all learn from. It's one thing to seek to understand places and people that are external from your experience, and that's very admirable and valuable in its own right. But I think too often, we can get a little too comfortable with our knowledge of the places and the people that are in our daily lives, even when we don't know or understand everything about them. And when we allow ourselves to acknowledge that we don't know everything, and that that's okay, that's when we can find so much more space to grow. You've been listening to TBH, produced by KALW Public Radio. Thank you to all the teenagers who made this show. And thanks to our artists, editors, engineers, and teachers, including Shireen Adel, Daoud Anthony, Gabe Graben, Awan Mance, Holly J. McDeed, Kristen McCandless, James Rollins, and Ben Trefney. In our next episode, we'll take on the music industry. Mainstream hip-hop is kind of, I don't think it's the greatest representation of what the genre represents, because a lot of it is just, I have money, I have sex, I will kill you. And I think that's kind of the fault of just pushing the easiest to make music rather than the best. Tune in next time to hear us talk about music and culture here on TBH. And when you do, please give us a rating on your podcast provider. And if you think the teenagers you've been hearing from are worth it, leave us a review. Help our voices reach even more people. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Samuel Getacho.